Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and we're going to be in actually a number of different texts this morning. In Acts 2, 42, to begin, we're celebrating Thanksgiving this coming week in our homes, and I thought that today, the, the Lord's Day before Thanksgiving, this was as good a time as any to share with you some thoughts that I've compiled from a little kind of informal study I've been doing on the churches listed in the New Testament. In fact, all the churches listed in the New Testament. I'll come back to that in a moment, though. To stay with the thankfulness theme, I'm particularly and personally just filled with thankfulness for what the Lord has done and continues to do in our church here. It's just astounding to me. What he has done here, we we don't have a great anything. We're, We're not a wealthy church. We're not a famous church. We're not an influential church in any way, and yet the Lord has chosen to bless and to work through you. And and that's just astounding to me. But it hasn't been without cost, and it hasn't been without risk. We've been blessed with new believers over these past few years, and some of you have paid the price. You've suffered disdain and rejection from family or friends for your faith in Christ, and we, we understand that. And of course, we've been blessed most recently to move into our new facility, and yet that took tremendous sacrifice and generosity on your part, your part, to, really to a degree I've never personally seen in the gospel ministry. It, that was an astounding time. We've been blessed to see the maturing and the expansion of several ministries, men's ministry, women's ministry, Spanish ministry, and, and many others, but not without effort and not without cost. Now, if you've been here for any period of time, I hope you know this. I think you know me a little bit, and I I think you know that I love the church in general, and I love our church in particular. Our our church is is a love for me and for our whole family, and based in this love, I'm always wondering how can I better shepherd? How can I guide in a way that's, that's feeding you the word of God at an even higher level? And along with that, how to better mentor all of us as a whole and what it means to be faithful. And so the little study that I've been doing, just almost as a, as a side note for myself, that I wanted to share with you is simply a study of how the churches in the New Testament operated when it comes to trusting the Lord, when it comes to living by faith, particularly in the area of living by faith with their finances and with their, with their money, the money of the church. And even when I bring that up, I know that in our culture, invariably, we tend to look with suspicion not only at giving to the church, but also with how the church uses those funds. And I've preached a lot of sermons on giving. We haven't preached many sermons on what does the church do with those funds once they're, they're given. How do we live by faith? We would all agree that the church is to be as wise with funds as possible, but in our culture, we can tend to be a little bit conservative, even to the point of being overly cautious and And here's the danger. The danger that every local church ought to look out for is that the church becomes more consumed with preserving itself as an organization than with simply doing the work of the ministry, doing what Christ has commanded us to do. You're familiar with this concept. We we see this every two years in elections, don't we? That most politicians long ago, they prioritize getting reelected at all costs over the actual work that they're elected to do. We've seen this. And in the church, the church can become consumed with self-protection. And then it becomes uh, a, a difficulty because it interferes with the boldness necessary to step out in faith to serve the Lord. And now there becomes more and more strategizing, more and more uh, planning, which is fine, but less and less faith. Now, I'll give you a kind of a radical example. In the late 1980s, the largest and most influential Baptist church in the world, First Baptist Church of Dallas with over 30,000 members, they were transitioning from the famed Dr. W.A. Criswell, who would retire after almost five decades of ministry, And by the way, the church only had two pastors from 1897 to about 1990. And so the church is an icon. Now, there's arguments as to when W.A. Criswell actually transitioned out, I say around 1990, because his senior pastor transition was lengthy. It took 27 months for the pastor search committee to find a man to replace Dr. Criswell, First Baptist Church called Dr. Joel Gregory. 
Joel Gregory was a tremendous preacher with what one writer called a voice that sounds like God himself. Dr. Gregory was only 42 years old when he became the senior pastor, and he had a genuine desire to preach the gospel of Christ and to respect, respectfully take the helm from Dr. Chriswell. But as Dr. Gregory came on, he began to discover some disturbing undercurrents in the church as a whole. The first one he discovered is that Dr. Chriswell had no intention of leaving, that he intended to stay as co-pastor until he could celebrate his 50th anniversary of the church, and he made certain that everybody on staff and in the church knew that he was actually still in charge. The second undercurrent Dr. Gregory discovered became very clear that protecting the church itself, protecting the image of the church, the image that was projected to the world, to the public, uh, First Baptist Church Dallas has been called the, the, uh, the Vatican of Protestantism. It is the place where all Baptists kind of look to, but protecting the image became more important than anything. He found backstabbing among the staff and toward him as well very common. He found the attendance numbers highly inflated and exaggerated. He found a high-level pressure to pander to the super wealthy in the church, which included oil company presidents, real estate moguls, several incredibly rich widows such as Ruth Hunt, who is the wife of the hyper-successful oil man H.L. Hunt, who left behind one of the largest net worths in the world at the time of his death. In every corner, he found that pandering to the image and the public and the wealthy were the real priorities of the church. And the third undercurrent he found was that from the time he began his ministry, W.A. Criswell's wife, Betty, who by reputation was a woman nobody wanted to cross, including W.A. himself, she was a powerful influence in the church, and she had immediately begun a campaign to ruin Dr. Gregory's reputation from the day he set foot on the campus. Dr. Gregory, an eminent preacher of the word, highly respected in every circle in the Baptist church, lasted precisely 22 months. By the time he gave his surprise resignation at a Wednesday evening service, he was so hated by so many that he had to be escorted off the campus by two private detectives, whisked away to a place where his car was hidden and not seen again for several years. He became known as the most hated Baptist ever because he dared to try to actually pastor the church that W.A. Criswell wouldn't relinquish. Dr. Gregory's life was ruined, including his marriage, which didn't stand the strain of the tragedy. After four years of nobody hearing anything from him, he, he broke his silence with his book called Too Great a Temptation, The Seductive Power of America's Super Church. That book is like reading an Agatha Christie mystery novel. That thing is a page turner. It is absolutely riveting. And the major lesson that I took away from Dr. Gregory's book was when the local church becomes more concerned with image, with what people think, with self-preservation, with believing the legend of its own existence, that church has lost its way. No matter how seemingly successful it looks, they've forgotten that the church is owned by the Lord Jesus Christ and their mission has been derailed. Now, you might be looking around and saying, we don't have 30,000 here, we have nothing to worry about. In case anyone thinks that's a problem reserved for large, well-known churches, it's not. I've had the opportunity over the years to come alongside pastors and even whole leadership teams in smaller churches to consult about difficulties they're experiencing. And in my experience at times, the smaller the church, the more intense the power struggle. The more likely those in leadership are to, quote-unquote, protect the church. Not in the sense of providing true spiritual shepherding, but in the sense of believing that the church's very existence is more important than following Christ and humbly submitting to his word. I know of one church on the East Coast who had an historic building valued at millions and millions of dollars, and yet the church was small and struggling, so they called a, a solid expository preacher to try to turn this thing around, but, but the church wasn't even able to pay him a living wage, and the building, although it was, it was historic, was too big and too far out of the way for most to reasonably attend. And so the new pastor suggested they sell the church, buy a reasonable, modern, functional facility, and pay him a reasonable salary to get the ministry going and the church leaders voted him down because the historic nature of the building was more important than the actual work of the church i suspect during the great tribulation some 
big hailstone is going to hit that building and show them exactly how much it's worth. For me personally, I'm sobered by stories like that. I'm warned by stories like that and many others like them, which I've seen firsthand. So what does it mean for a church to live by faith? What does that mean? Well, first of all, thinking about what Scripture says about us as individuals living by faith, the primary principle is a deep, abounding reliance upon God, who is our providing Father. We think about the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, provision for today, not give us this decade our daily bread, but give us today our daily bread. We think about James warning us against self-sufficiency, Outside of faith in the Lord, when he says in James 4, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So I think we understand to a certain degree what it means for an individual to live by faith. But what does it mean for a church to live by faith? Well, the little study I did was to basically go to the pages of the New Testament and to give a survey, so to speak, of every church mentioned by name in the New Testament. The number varies depending slightly uh, depending on how you count, but I counted 34 individually named churches in the New Testament. And my survey of these churches was simply to ask the question from the text of Scripture, How did these churches operate in terms of how they trusted the Lord, how they used the funds of the church for the ministry? And interestingly, of the 34 churches, I found 12 of them in which the use of money is directly mentioned or at least strongly implied. 11 of them provide incredibly positive, good principles for us, and one provides a strong warning, don't do this. But what I found overall, except for the one, was a story of gospel-centered, word-centered, risk-taking, faithful churches in how they use their resources. And so this morning, I just want to do a simple Bible study in three parts. The first part will take the majority of our time. I'd like to show you 10 principles from faithful churches, plus I'll tack on one warning there. 10 principles from faithful churches. And then to close out our time, secondly, I'll do lessons from risk-taking churches Briefly, and then the last thing I'll do is I, I want to give you a synthesis, a summary of the ideas that are missing from faithful churches and present in faithful churches. So that'll be kind of a, a final summary there. But we'll spend most of our time on the first part, 10 principles from faithful churches plus one warning tacked onto the end. So this is just kind of a, a high altitude overview. The first principle is brought to you by the church at Jerusalem. And that is the principle of loving one another. The principle of loving one another. The church has just been born on earth. New believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and they immediately begin worshiping and fellowshipping with each other every single day. Acts chapter 2 verse 42, very familiar to us. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. The original church of Jerusalem was all Jewish. And they were well aware of the opposition that faced them. Many of them were from other countries as well, having traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And because of this, many of the the local new believers were, were being shunned by family. The locals were. And then those who were from out of town, they didn't want to leave. Now, why is this? If you're a new Christian from outside the country and there's literally one church on earth at the moment and one group of qualified preachers called apostles, would you go home? No, they stayed there. But their travel funds were going to run out, but they stayed. So what did the new church do? Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need. Now, to be clear, this is not a general principle that churches should become 100% communist or communal like this. This is a very unique situation in the opening days and months of the church. But one of the clear impacts of their new faith was this immediate spirit-driven love for one another shown in very tangible ways. There's no evidence here that this was some sort of organized program. 
It just began happening. They were overjoyed with their new faith. They were overjoyed with their new church family. And, and listen to their joy. In verse 46, that they were devoting, daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. I love Acts chapter 2 because in many ways, this is the purest expression of the church, isn't it? It's unencumbered, unencumbered by other trappings and worries, and except, of course, for one worry. They were all worried for their lives. The church would be decimated with the martyrdom of Stephen. Acts 8.1 says, On that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles and Chapter 8, verse 3 says that for many who stayed, Saul, soon to be converted himself, led soldiers house to house, dragging men and women to prison for being part of the church. Now, why is this so special? Because at the time of the day of Pentecost, the church at Jerusalem consisted literally of every single Christian on earth. Every single one. And their instinctive response was to love one another. That's the first thing they did. They poured their resources out to one another ultimately. Why? So the gospel could go forward. It was always focused on the gospel. Let me give you a second principle, and this is brought to you by the church at Antioch. And we'll be specific, Antioch in Syria. There's another church in the city called Antioch in Pisidia, which is a province, a Roman province. So this is Syrian Antioch, and the principle is member-initiated efforts. Member-initiated efforts. Turn with me to Acts 11, and we'll just keep going in order here. Acts 11, verse 22. The church at Antioch here is described through the eyes of Barnabas. Barnabas had been sent by the church at Jerusalem to investigate, because in Antioch there were rumors that a whole bunch of new believers were just popping up. And so Barnabas went to investigate. Acts 11, verse 22. Now the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch, who, when he arrived and saw the grace of God, rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a purposeful heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and the faith, and a considerable crowd was brought to the Lord. So the church is growing with new believers. What does a church that's growing this fast need? They need Bible teachers. And so Barnabas decided to aim high. He went after the premier Old Testament teacher in the entire church of Jesus Christ, the re recently converted Saul of Tarsus, or Paul. Verse 25, And he left for Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it happened that for an entire year, they met with the church and taught a considerable crowd. Here's a little note for us. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. By the way, that was a name given by non-believers, not by us. You know what that means? It means in Greek, the little Christs, the ones who are imitating Christ. And so we've taken that on. It was formerly a, a, an insult, but now we're proud to be called Christians. But what was happening elsewhere in the world? There was a financial crisis for fellow believers back in the Jerusalem area where Barnabas had come from, and God sent some of the early church era prophets who had words from the Lord before a completed New Testament. They had words from the Lord for this church. And so in verse 27, now in those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. So what did the new church of Antioch do? They spontaneously began a grassroots effort to help. Verse 29, And as any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the service of the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. There's no indication of an organized effort in this case. It was simply the members of the church saying, we're not going to stand by and watch our brothers starve. But I want you to notice something very important here. The wording in verse 29 
They determined to send a contribution for the service of the brothers. This word service is the same Greek root word for deacon. It means the ministry of the brothers, the the outworking of the gospel. In other words, the church at Antioch wasn't just concerned for the well-being of the physical needs of their brothers and sisters in Judea and in Jerusalem. They were concerned that the ministry of the word must continue. So that's what was their focus. They, they focused on the ministry, and this was a, a member-initiated effort. There's no indication of elders voting on this or starting any sort of organized collection. It just happened. But that leads to our third principle, brought to you again by the church at Antioch, kind of the opposite side of the coin, we'll call this principle elder-initiated efforts. Elder-initiated efforts. Turn to chapter 13 of the book of Acts, and what we're going to see in Acts 13 is really considered the birth of the concept of church-sponsored missions. This is the birth of the missions movement. Acts 13, beginning in verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. This is a description of the leadership team at the church at Antioch, the plurality of elders, all teachers of the word of God. They were seeking the Lord in this beautiful and inspiring fashion and in this era of direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. They, of one accord, in full agreement, set apart Barnabas and Saul to begin what famously would be known as Paul's first missionary journey. I want you to notice a key phrase right at the end of verse 3. They laid their hands on them. They sent them away or sent them off. This cannot simply mean that they said, well, see you later, alligator. Watch out for shipwrecks and riots and that sort of thing. Hope everything goes well. No, this has a clear indication that they sent them away funded, that this would have been the leaders of the church marshalling the resources of the whole church, involving the whole church. Why? This is epic. This is the first ever missionary being sent out. Now, in the previous principle, we saw member-initiated efforts that the members of the church at Antioch took a, uh, saw a gospel need and they just took care of it. But here we see the other side of that coin, a gospel project of really heroic proportions led by the leadership of the church. Which, incidentally, the church at Antioch, as far as their leaders go, they took a hit. Not only did they financially support Barnabas and Saul, they sent their best teachers out, and the other three that were left undoubtedly took up the slack. They gave up 40% of their leadership team to do this. That is a church that's not just looking out for itself, but doing all in its power to reach the the world with the gospel. Now, I want you to just drink this in for a moment. This is so hard for us to grasp. This had never been done. It had never been done. Several times, Paul would return to the church at Antioch to report on the many churches that had been planted, the, the countless converts that were beginning to fill up the Roman Empire with uh, Christians So many so that later on in the book of Acts, the apostles would be accused by unbelievers of, quote, turning the world upside down, unquote. But let that sink in. The church at Antioch had no other model to follow. They had no examples to rely upon. There were no books on missions. There were no degrees in in missions. The Holy Spirit directed them and they stepped out into new frontiers and to this day, That church that lived by faith and sacrificed 40% of its Bible teachers is famous for their faithfulness to plant churches all over the world. There's a fourth principle brought to you by the church at Puteoli. I'll bet you've never heard that before. The church at Puteoli in Italy, and we'll call this principle spontaneous gospel opportunities. Spontaneous gospel opportunities. Turn to the very end of the book of Acts in chapter 28, verse 13. Chapter 28, verse 13. Paul has now been arrested for his gospel activities, and 
He's requested an audience with Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen, and now he's being transported to Rome while in chains with a Roman soldier charged with bringing him. Acts chapter 28, verse 13, spontaneous gospel opportunities. Chapter 28, verse 13, from there we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and after a day when a south wind sprang up, on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Now, let me paint a little bit of the context here. Paul is being guarded by a Roman centurion, an officer named Julius. Acts 27 tells us this. But Julius is also transporting other prisoners, and Julius has his soldiers with him to help transport those prisoners. So when the brothers at Puteoli took in Paul and invited him to stay for a week, they're also inviting Julius, the centurion, all of his soldiers, and all the other prisoners. This is lavish hospitality. And, and there were no Evites. There was no planning. They just showed up. But what an opportunity. The brothers at Puteoli with a literally captive audience of unbelievers for a week. And these would have been so grateful after months of travel, including a shipwreck, by the way, to just take a week to rest and recuperate and hearing the gospel from these believers in Puteoli and seeing the evidence of what changed lives look like under the banner of Christ. And so it's not a surprise to us that when Paul wrote the Philippian church from Rome, he gave greetings on behalf of Roman soldiers who had come to faith in Christ. I want you to notice something. The church at Puteoli had no time to have committee meetings or to develop a ministry strategy. Those are all good things, of course. But in this case, they simply responded to a spontaneous gospel opportunity, and they did so with lavish generosity. Let me give you a fifth principle. This is brought to you by the church at Rome. And this is the principle we'll call extraordinary efforts. Extraordinary efforts. And we find this example from the church at Rome right here in the same episode with Paul. Verse 14, again, there, that is in Puteoli, we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brothers, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Apparently, word had been sent from Puteoli all the way to Rome that the great apostle Paul was in chains. He was under arrest, and he was coming to Rome to have an audience with Caesar. And so the Roman church sent quite a few men to meet him and to encourage him. And they would, they would have great cost to themselves. They're leaving their workplaces. They're traveling extensively for many days. A few of them came all the way to the market of Appius. That's a, a station on the road to Rome, 43 miles from the city. That's a good couple of days if you're going fast. Even more came to three inns, which is 33 miles away from Rome. But what was the result? What was the outcome of this extraordinary effort by the church at Rome at great cost and great sacrifice to themselves? It drove Paul to prayer and to thank the Lord. And it says here to take courage. Why was this giving him courage? Because the, the brothers at Rome were a tangible reminder that the Lord was with Paul as he was approaching a potentially life-threatening audience with Caesar who had the power to simply say, uh, kill him now. And, and then he had, was going to be under house arrest for what would end up being a couple of years. And so these believers were an encouragement to, to him and they put together these extraordinary efforts. And I've observed this, and I know you've observed this. The church of Jesus Christ languishes and suffers when the culture of a local church develops into self-preservation at all costs, into the members having an attitude that God should be grateful that I give whatever little I give, and that those who give more expect special treatment, and you become like, the sad situation at First Baptist Church of Dallas. But instead, when we band together for extraordinary efforts, there is a sweetness of our time on this earth together that we serve as a team and as a body. There's a sixth principle I found in my survey, and this is brought to you by the churches at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. 
Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea can, are the churches mainly associated with the church in Macedonia, which is a larger region. But this principle is sacrificial and risky giving. Sacrificial and risky giving. Brought to you by the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is giving the Corinthian church testimony of the type of giving these three churches, the major churches we know of in Macedonia, that they were doing. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty abounded under richness of their generosity. Verse 3. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Paul was spending a significant time taking up a collection from various churches to help the impoverished believers in Jerusalem. And to the Corinthians, he masterfully reminds them of how other churches were responding. You know, you guys don't want to be left in the dust here. The, the churches in Macedonia, they're, they're, they're really kicking it up into high gear here. And certainly you don't want to be left behind. But look at the descriptors of how the Macedonian churches responded. They gave in the midst of affliction. Verse 2, they, they didn't wait for things to be well in their lives. They didn't wait for things to be calm. They were being afflicted, they were being persecuted, and they gave in the midst of that. Not only did they give in the midst of affliction, they gave with an abundance of joy. It, it wasn't like the old cartoon where the, the offering plate is going by and the guy puts a five in and takes four ones out and change. There was an abundance of joy. They gave out of their, verse 2, their deep poverty. Deep poverty means they didn't even have enough to live on day by day, and yet they, they took from even that and gave. They also gave, in verse 3, beyond their ability. It's a, it's a phrase that means beyond what should have been possible. Then when they added up what was given, they said, no way, you don't have that much money between you in the first place. They gave voluntarily, verse 3, of their own accord. And Paul gave them the opportunity, but they had willing hearts. And in fact, they also begged to participate. I love that. Begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And they gave in total subjection to the Lord and to Paul, meaning that they said, we're giving wholeheartedly to whatever you say you need. We're just going to do it. This is phenomenal. They gave in the midst of affliction. They gave with an abundance of joy. They gave out of their deep poverty. They gave beyond their ability. They gave voluntarily. They begged to participate and they gave in total subjection to the Lord. This is stunning. And Paul says it perfectly in verse 5 that they gave not as we had expected. Paul is overwhelmed by this sacrificial and risky giving. For the church in Philippi in particular, this seemed to be par for the course for them. When Paul was imprisoned, Philippi sent Epaphroditus to bring financial help to Paul. And this was at great risk to Epaphroditus himself because he got deathly ill on the journey and nearly died. In Philippians 4, Paul describes the sweet sacrificial giving of the, the Philippians. In verse 10 of Philippians 4, he indicated that they had continued thinking about him, that he was always on their mind, but they didn't have a way to give to him. They didn't have the opportunity, but now that he was imprisoned, they had the opportunity and they jumped on it. In verse 15 of Philippians 4, Paul honors them for the time early in his ministry that, that the church of Philippi was literally the only church supporting him. In the verse 18 of Philippians 4, he says that they sent him so much that he has an abundance. He has more than he can use. And he calls this generous gift a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And famously, he assured the church at Philippi that because of their sacrificial giving, Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours, meaning the churches and the individuals in the church, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Sacrificial giving, risky giving. What churches in Macedonia? 
Here's a seventh principle brought to you by the church at Corinth itself. The church at Corinth, and we'll call this principle promises of giving. Promises of giving. Right here, probably on the same page for you, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is still in the midst of making the same collection, and really all of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 deals with the topic of how the church uses money. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 1, For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case. And I'll stop right there for a moment. This is Paul saying, I know you're ready. In fact, I've been bragging about you to the Macedonians. You notice in chapter 8, he's been bragging to the Macedonians, bragging to the Corinthians about the Macedonians, going back and forth. As they say, he, Paul was born at night, but not last night. He was telling them all to inspire one another. He's explaining why he sent some brothers ahead of him to take up this collection. What was the reason? To keep the Corinthians from making fools of themselves. Verse 3, I have sent the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Lest if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, be put to shame in this certainty of yours. This is genius leadership. This is Paul saying, you know, just in case some of the people from Philippi and from Berea and from Thessalonica happen to come with me and we brag to them about how you'd be ready. You need to have this pile of money ready to give to the church at Jerusalem and we get there and all you have is $1.95. We'd sure hate for you to be embarrassed, right? This is genius Why is Paul being so bold with the Corinthians? Because this isn't the first time he's broached the subject. In fact, they've made promises already. Verse 5, So I regarded it necessary to encourage the brothers that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised blessing so that the same would be ready as a blessing and not as a begrudging obligation. Did you catch those words? Your previously promised blessing. In other words, to put it in in terms we understand, Paul took pledges. He took promises. And just like he did with the generous Philippian church, he assures the Corinthian church that their generosity would be rewarded. And in fact, not only will, will they be rewarded, but listen carefully, because of their faithfulness, God would provide even more for them to give yet again, to do more ministry. Look at verse 8 with me of 2 Corinthians 9. This is phenomenal. And God is able to make every grace abound to you so that in everything at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And we so often want to apply that to us as individuals. This is applied to the church. It comes through the individuals, but his application is for the church. Verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all generosity, which through us is bringing about thanksgiving to God. This increasing ministry capacity due to the faith giving of the church literally creates prayers to heaven not just by Paul, but now it goes beyond that. In verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also abounding through many thanksgivings to God. This is stunning, that faith giving results in God entrusting more to you as a church, which results in prayers of thanksgiving being offered by all who benefit from the ministry. What joy they must have experienced as they saw this lived out in their church and beyond the walls of their church. There's an eighth principle brought to you by the church at Thessalonica. The church at Thessalonica will call this principle regional evangelism. Regional evangelism. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And what we see here in 1 Thessalonians 1 when Paul is writing this church, they're very young in the faith. They're just just a baby church. Paul's only been able originally to stay there a few months. He was run out of town by the enemies of the gospel. And so his letter to them is expressing his pleasant surprise at the very quick reputation that the church has gained. And we see this reputation in 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 6. 
Paul tells them what they already know about themselves. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And for the, word of, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. The church, in some way, without aid of any technology, has spread the gospel through two major Roman provinces and beyond that. In fact, I love this. Paul uses the word picture of a herald, a, someone shouting with a loud voice. He says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. It's trumpeted from you. It could be traced back all the way to them. In fact, Paul says in verse 9, and I'll just paraphrase here, every time he got to a new city, he already heard about the faith of the Thessalonians. It, it beat him there. Now, there's no direct mention of the money here, but this sort of Regional evangelism never happens without financial backing. It never happens without a significant amount of funds going toward this effort. Whether it's an organic effort or an organized effort, doesn't make any difference. It doesn't happen without financial commitment to the gospel. I wondered what inspired them so much. And certainly the joy of their salvation is, is an inspiration. But I do have to wonder if their vivid memory of how the gospel was brought to them might have had some bearing on how aggressive they were in their regional evangelism. You remember how the gospel was brought to them? One day, coming down the road from Philippi, 100 miles away toward Thessalonica, two men were walking, and they were walking slowly, perhaps with a limp. They were walking slowly because they were hurting. They were beaten and bruised and, and bloodied, And they just walked over a period of a couple of days, a hundred miles, just after having been beaten nearly half to death. And these men are named Paul and Silas. And they arrive in Thessalonica, and they went straight to the synagogue in this state and started preaching the gospel to these people who needed Jesus Christ and the message of the cross. That these missionaries of missionaries are the inspiration for the church of Thessalonica. And in some way that isn't fully explained The church at Thessalonica engaged in and funded their regional evangelism. There's a ninth principle. This one's brought to you by the church at Ephesus. Church at Ephesus, and that's the principle of generous support. The principle of generous support. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 5 for the church at Ephesus. Timothy is serving in Ephesus as Paul's apostolic representative to this large church meeting in numerous locations. And Timothy's primary duty in this assignment is to clean up the false teaching that's beginning to pervade the church and to teach the church about true biblical elders and how they're to lead and how the church is to respond to them. And in one section of his teaching uh, from Paul, uh, Paul says this to Timothy that he's to pass on to to the others in the church. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, the elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching the word and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. In verse 17, Paul speaks of honor, and that is speaking of honor in the normative sense of respect, but it also speaks of money. This is made very clear in verse 18. You shall not muzzle the ox, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So now Paul's very clearly talking about money, and what he gives in the first part of verse 18 is an illustration from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Now, we actually covered this earlier this year, but the reference Paul makes here in verse 18 is so little understood. I think it's worth revisiting again. The scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. Why does he give this illustration? Is is Paul taking the verse out of context just to make a point? And my question is, why is he comparing the pastor to an ox? Should I be offended by this? Well, in the ancient Near East, an ox was used as part of the harvest process. In this case, the, the threshing or the treading of the grain. An ox or a pair of oxen was used to drag a heavy threshing board behind them. It started the process of separating the good grain from the husks of the grain. And in fact, in the context of Deuteronomy 25.4, this is not a verse just about being kind to animals. 
In fact, Martin Luther famously said that this verse can't be for the ox because the ox can't read. So it's not about the ox. The context of Deuteronomy 25 is it's in a larger section on how the citizens of Israel were to treat one another, especially with justice, in a justice situation. In fact, if this law was only for the owners of the ox, it actually wouldn't make sense. Because by virtue of ownership, there's already built-in motivation. You take care of your own property. You feed your own animals. You're not going to starve your own animal. And so if someone is using an ox to thresh his grain harvest, and he's muzzled the ox so that it won't eat the few little handfuls of grain while he's doing the work, it's not the owner doing that. See, not every farmer necessarily owned an ox, and so it would be common to borrow or rent an ox from a neighbor to do the threshing. And the renter or the borrower of the ox, well, if he didn't want to lose any grain to the ox, he would stick a muzzle on it. It's not his ox. He doesn't care if it starves to death. The ox can eat later. And so Deuteronomy 25.4 isn't a commentary on just how to treat the ox. It's a commentary on how to treat your neighbor. But more to Paul's use of Deuteronomy 25.4, not only does it talk about justice, it talks about value. Then an ox was of much more value than a few handfuls of grain. And so the person refusing to let the ox eat from the, the produce is devaluing the ox, which is not easily replaced, and instead being stingy about just a few little handfuls, a few, a few bites of grain. So it's a matter of justice and a matter of value. It's unjust to the owner and to the ox to be stingy in feeding the ox, and it's a matter of value that the ox is of much more value than the grain. Now, why does Paul put this in here in regard to the financial support of vocational shepherds? Well, this is what's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. That if God of heaven is concerned about the justice and value of the ox helping with the harvest... How much more is God concerned about how the shepherds of the church are treated? For the vocational shepherds, the ones who work hard at preaching and teaching, it's a matter of justice and value. Providing for the shepherds of the church is a matter of living by faith as a church and trusting that the Lord honors this in the same way that Paul promised both the Philippians and the Corinthians. We'll do one more principle. This is brought to you by the churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia. The church is at Smyrna in Philadelphia, and the principle is faithfulness to the extreme. Faithfulness to the extreme. And we find this in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8. Revelation 2, verse 8. While you're finding that, the, the church at Smyrna is the suffering church. And the Lord Jesus himself tells them that not only are they suffering, they're going to suffer more. Verse 8 of Revelation 2, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, this is what the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Lord acknowledges that they're not a church of much means. I know your poverty, he says, while simultaneously assuring them that in the heavenlies they're rich beyond their wildest dreams because of their faithfulness. But they're going to suffer even more. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. I want you to notice something about Smyrna. The lack of funds didn't stop the ministry. They stretched themselves. The Lord asked them to have faith unto death and to look ahead to heaven, to the crown of life in the midst of their suffering. And we see a similar lesson in the Church of Philadelphia. Turn to chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says to the Church of Philadelphia, I know your deeds. Behold, I have given before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I am giving up those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. They have a little power. They're, they're not a super church. They're not a mega church. But with what they have, they're faithful. And what's the result? 
Verse 9, those who were formerly enemies of the gospel are going to bow down at their feet. Now, we don't ever see this. I've never had an unbeliever walk into Grace Bible Church and bow down at our feet. That doesn't happen. Why would they be coming to bow down at the feet of those believers in Philadelphia? Because they were faithful to proclaim the gospel, and these who were members of the synagogue of Satan got saved. And they're coming in gratitude, saying, Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for sharing Christ with me. Thank you for proclaiming the gospel to me. They were faithful to the extreme. We love the churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia because from a worldly perspective, they don't have much. But you know what's something that's happened to them? 2,000 years later, they're still being held up as an example. Well, after 10 principles of a church living by faith, we have one warning from the last church mentioned by name in the New Testament. This warning brought to you by the church at Laodicea. And the warning is, don't arrive. Don't arrive. Don't get smug. Don't get snooty. Don't get arrogant. Chapter 3, verse 15 I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Okay, this is the church that grew arrogant in their resources. They had money, they knew it, and they hung on to it. This is the church that had arrived. And what happened to them? They stopped being effective. They were lukewarm. This is very sad, too, by the way, because according to Colossians 4, they started well. But they were self-focused and and self-protective. Well, let me just finish our time by kind of synthesizing and making some observations from a couple of angles here. Um, I just want to kind of share with you kind of the overview of of what I found, and what I think you'll see is that when we put this all together, it really has developed for us a theology of how we ought to think. And so what I'd like to do is just kind of give you some things that are, are missing and some things that are present in these churches. First of all, things that are missing. Things that are missing is that all of these accounts of churches the faithful ones never seem self-protective. There's never a sense of, oh no, we have to protect the church. Do you realize that the the believers in Philadelphia and Smyrna had an option? They could have moved, right? They could have packed up their belongings and just left. There's no sense of self-protection. Here's something I could not find a single example of, and that is a sense of worry and anxiety for the provision of the ministry. Not once. Was there this sense of, oh, no, is God going to provide enough money for us to do the work of the ministry? It's never there. To both the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 9 and the church at Philippi in Philippians 4, Paul assured them that their faithfulness as a church would result in God supplying them as a church. Something I also know that's missing, fear. There was no fear concerning doing the work of the ministry. That you, you don't have a picture of a church gathering together and, and going, oh no, what are we going to do? And wringing their hands. They're just doing the work. And one last thing that was notably missing, there was no bashfulness about talking about the use of money for the ministry. They just, I mean, Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this thing is a tome on use of money in the ministry. There's no bashfulness. Those are the things that are missing. But what is present What's present in the churches? They care for one another. It's sad to me how churches become independent little silos that don't look to each other's needs. But they cared for one another as as sister churches. We also saw great sacrifice from what we might call non-professionals. People like Epaphroditus risking his life to bring financial help from the Philippians. We saw them placing great value on the ministry, that it was worth something to them. We saw a sense of tremendous sacrifice, not to legalistically please God, but out of love for the workers of the gospel and love for the gospel itself. 
inspiring to me, we saw gospel workers working much harder than just a job, going beyond any sense of a a per-hour wage. And I love this. This is one of my favorites. I, I gathered in a sense of not knowing any limits. The church at Thessalonica didn't know they weren't supposed to evangelize the entire world. They just did. The Thessalonian church spreading the gospel farther than they could possibly imagine. Syrian Antioch sending off 40% of their elders to the mission field. They were limitless. I saw the expectation of further effective ministry based in faithfulness. And really, this is my entire point this morning. The Lord Jesus told the church at Philadelphia, you have but a little power. But he said, I'm going to put before you an open door because with what little I gave you, you were faithful with it. Why wouldn't he put them on the front lines? Why wouldn't he make them first string? They were faithful with a little. And so they would be faithful with much. I believe with all of my heart it is a trap to go down the road of looking to self-preservation. This is Christ's church. Grace Bible Church is not an institution. It is not something that we must preserve. It is Christ's body to do with as he pleases. The Lord seems to give more responsibility to those who are faithful with what was previously given and the Lord gives to the, the, the church gives to the Lord rather in the same way individuals do for the gospel ministry, taking risks, being sacrificial. My heart is filled with thankfulness. As we sang earlier, when I think about the risks that you have taken as a church, the generosity you have shown, but you remember the lesson from Laodicea, don't arrive. We've never arrived. We never grow smug. By faith, we've brought Alex Barrientos on staff to serve our growing Spanish-speaking community, and we hope that the Lord will bless this. We did not do that because we have a billion dollars in the bank just sitting there doing nothing. We did that by faith. We moved into this facility in June, just barely able to do a phase one remodel with about enough money for three nails left over fully believing that God will continue to provide for us to make this facility that can be used for maximum ministry. We're going to be talking, in fact, at our celebration banquet in late January about the next phase of remodeling as we focus on the theme of God's faithfulness. Early in the spring, we're going to launch Joyful Generosity Part 2 because God blesses our generosity and we're going to keep it going. I'm praying for a couple of more men to be brought on staff to raise the bar of our ministry capability even more because we never arrive. We're adding missionaries like crazy right now. We have a number of missionaries that you're familiar with. We're going to work on more exposure and higher effectiveness for our media ministry website, Steadfast in the Faith, because we can reach just almost countless numbers of people through that avenue. And as always... We will never stop preaching the word relentlessly, stop discipling relentlessly, and stop praying relentlessly. I'm just thankful for what the Lord has done. But I'm also warned by Laodicea, we never arrive. So I'm praying for 2023 to be a banner year and that as we, as a church, live by faith, God will give us more responsibility, more effectiveness for the sake of the name, for the sake of the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens when we do all that we've talked about this morning? What we do, what we see happen is what happened to Paul and what happened to the church of Jerusalem. It causes prayers of what? Thanksgiving. So you want to be thankful? Then we step out and we give and we, we honor the Lord and we do more and more. We be used but to be used by the Lord And what will it do? It will cause us even more to just be grateful and thankful. And what does that do? It gives glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the whole point. I am filled with thankfulness. I know you are as well. But let's see what he does in 2023. God has an amazing way of outdoing himself, doesn't he? Well, let's pray and see what the Lord will do. Our Father, we, we thank you so much. I look around at this precious, beautiful body of believers gathered here and and so many others like it gathered around the world. What a gift the church is and, and how faithful you are, Lord, to bless our sacrificial risk-taking for the sake of the gospel. I pray that that would be 
the evaluation of the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ of our little body, Grace Bible Church. I pray that we would be found faithful, living by faith, doing more, never arriving, asking you to bless the work of the ministry. We believe this would bring the most honor and the most glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.